With the existing meatpacking sector coming under intense scrutiny, interest in expanding facilities and creating more independence and competition in the industry has flourished. Which of the several proposed plants looks the most promising? That's today on Field Posts. is a DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. The Biden administration's big announcement in 2021, which brought new funding specifically aimed at increasing competition in the U.S.'s meatpacking sector, was not by far the first sign that ranchers and feedlots alike were feeling the sting of tough market conditions, even while consumers paid record high prices at the meat counter. In the wake of this funding, a number of new meatpacking facilities have been proposed all over the country. DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton has been keeping an eye on a number of these proposed projects, and learning more about their viability and their potential impacts on markets and producers in their areas. He joins us today to unpack his latest reporting on the meat processing sector, to shed some light on how successful similar projects have been in the past, and to discuss how changing economic and policy conditions might affect which plants get off the ground. We'll also check in on this evolving farm bill season and other key policy stories to watch right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential more than ever to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN Ag Policy Editor Chris Clayton joins us today to talk more about an expansive story in the meat sector. Chris, we're hearing about a number of proposals for new meat processing facilities all across the country. Give us an update on where some of these stories stand right now. There are a lot of plants being proposed on the table right now all over the place. The one in Rapid City, South Dakota is probably the most unrealistic one to be built of all of the plants because it does not have any big investors behind it. There are no feed yards anywhere around Rapid City. You just have a woman who says she wants to build the largest packing plant in the country. It's an interesting deal. They don't have the water capacity in Rapid City. They don't have the employment population. They don't have the cattle, but she wants to build an 8,000 head a day packing plant, which would be bigger than anything Tyson or JBS or any of the big players have. The one out in North Platte was being put together by a bunch of cattle feeders out there. And what made that one interesting was a week or a couple of weeks ago, 
Walmart announced it was taking a um, a minority ownership of that plant. So you have these feedlot guys who are unhappy with the price that they're getting from the big packers, but they go ahead and they now are going to be partners with the biggest retailer in the country, Walmart. And the guys who are looking to build a packing plant not far from where I live, they think that's probably going to be a model going forward that if you are not directly part of one of the big big four packers, that you are probably going to have some sort of strong relationship with a major retailer that's going to ensure that you're, you have a retail space for your meat. It's an interesting scenario there. And even in then, so there are there's a now a proposal plan for a big beef packing plant in Amarillo, Texas. And then right after that Walmart story came out, there was an announcement of a, a big packing plant, a beef packing plant looking to go in a little bit west of St. Louis. So you have multiple different things going on. And then of course you have USDA out there with a big pot of money looking to at least help some of these packing plants get developed. I want to talk a little bit more about that USDA pot of money, because I'm curious how much from your perspective, all of this kind of new energy around new facilities is driven by USDA's, the Biden administration did a big push in 2021, I think, to talk about the lack of competition in the meat space. Does most of this energy seem to be coming from maybe the availability of federal dollars to support new facilities or why so much energy right now? Some of it is part of that aspect that there's this pot of money out there that will uh, will help at least some of these packing plants get developed. And not just federal money, but the one in Texas is getting a bunch of state aid as well. There's on USDA, they made this big announcement first uh, back in July of 2021 that this money was going to be coming out there. Well, there's still $425 million dollars that they are going to be announcing in larger grant and loan awards supposedly sometime before the end of this year. So you want to get your stake in the ground that, hey, I've got this, we've got this project, we've got this group of investors, we're lined up here. This is how our ducks in a row are going to work. And then ideally, maybe USDA will say, oh yeah, we're going to throw $100 million at your project. There's several of these proposals out there for these larger packing plants that would process anywhere from 1500 to the one in rapid city as much as 8000 head a day so you know these are not your small mom and pop operations the USDA has been providing a lot of grant money to the small beat lockers the guys who process 3 head a day 30 head a day maybe something like that but this is going to be on a much larger scale because each of these facilities you're talking about processing or at least employing several hundred people. And then just today I was reading in the pork side of things that up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, there's a, there is a proposal for a, another larger pork facility. And then there's a fight literally in Sioux Falls. There's going to be a ballot measure basically over whether they should ban any more meat processing facilities in the, in the city limits. 
versus allowing that project to go forward. That's just on the pork side of things. I'm not exactly sure how many pork processing facilities are being looked at. Been doing more tracking on the beef side. I'm curious whether you have an idea of what the kind of impacts or implications of all of this activity might be. It seems like mostly people are still in the talking stage, not yet in the building or developing stage. And like this might still be a couple of years out before producers are taking livestock to any of these facilities. But I'm curious what you're hearing from farmers on the ground, maybe or ranchers on the ground about what does this stuff mean to them? Well, there's some excitement if you think you're going to be able to maybe get involved and and market your cattle this way. But there's also maybe some leeriness that, you know, if you are a thousand head cattle feeder, relatively small in the grand scheme of things, and you've been selling to one of the big four packers pretty consistently, and you go off with one of these new guys down the road, and there's been a history, certainly I know in Iowa and maybe a few other places, of these independent meat packers getting established, getting going, and then everything collapses. The pack and plant in Tama, Iowa, which is now owned by National Beef, one of the big four, that plant went through multiple different owners of co-ops and everything else. The uh, Iowa cattlemen all tried different ways to run that plant independently and they all ended up failing in the end and it becomes part of one of the big four packers so there's really some concern among some producers that uh, you get one of these plants established and get it operating the big packers say yeah that's great you yeah sure you want to sell to them that's fine but we're giving 15 percent premiums for everybody who's bringing beef to us so make your pick and that's what kind of what happens the The larger packer, the big four, will provide some sort of incentive that discourages guys from selling to the smaller new entry into the business. And then they end up folding and then Tyson or JBS or somebody ends up buying that place for pennies on the dollar to make it into a fabrication operation or something like that. So it's a question, yet part of the reason that the packers have been so profitable in recent years is because there's been a small dial back of of processing. So prices of beef have gone up on the retail level. And so this has been the discouraging thing for the cattle producers. Certainly during COVID and right before that, you had some of these black swan events that caused the price, cash price for cattle, fed cattle to really collapse. But then the packers on the retail side were making a killing. And that's where all this kind of came from was there was the fire at the Tyson plant in Kansas. That plant, it's like a 5,000 head a day operation. So it's 5% of U.S. cattle slaughter daily. And when that fire happened, you saw fed cattle prices crash. You saw retail prices spike when... COVID began to hit and some of the packing plants saw their workers getting sick and they had to shut down for a little while. The same kind of scenario got even worse. Fed cattle prices really crashed and the retail beef prices went through the roof. That spread between the live cattle market and the box beef market hit record levels. And that's where all this kind of stemmed from in a sense 
this idea that maybe what the industry needs is a more independent competition. It's almost like you've seen Tesla get into the car market, but there aren't a lot of people who, who can compete with the big four, big five car manufacturers. It's very much the same in the cattle business. It's very hard to compete against the four big packers that really handle 85% of the fed cattle market. And I'm curious too about the timing in terms of challenging time in the cattle market for a lot of the reasons you just said, but then also because corn is sneaking up pretty rapidly in price and the national cattle herd is has been taking down uh, pretty regularly over the last 18 months or so, 18, 24 months, maybe longer than that. And then just more broadly in the economy, interest rates are rising. So folks are trying to get some of these construction costs financed. Seems like a more challenging time today than a year ago, maybe. I'm just curious, you spoke a little bit to how realistic maybe the Rapid City project is. As you look at all of these proposals and all of this energy to build all of these plants across the country, how much of this, from your perspective, seems like it might be more talk than action? Well, there's a lot of different action happening, and then they are getting backing. The The announcement of the feeder of the operation down in Amarillo, Texas, got a lot of initial state backing just as soon as it was announced. They have a lot of cattle feeders down there. They lost some processing when Cargill shut down a plant down in that way. So there are opportunities, but there are so many, there's all of these unique dynamics that go into the cattle business and drought is a huge part of it because drought over the last couple of years has affected a lot of the cow-calf operations, the inability to graze. They've been, you know, thinned back in the West, certainly, and even in states like North Dakota. So, you know, that aspect that we have a slightly smaller cattle herd while we have these proposals for packing plants coming in. I mean, at the moment right now, even as we're coming out of the grilling season, let's officially fall now, the fed cattle prices right now are really good. So there's a really high price right now for, for beef at the retail market, but, but the cattle prices have been extraordinarily strong. How long that remains, we don't know, but I think you're going to see potentially more imports coming in more imports of live cattle from Mexico and Canada, more pure beef product coming into the United States. Cattle producers are going to lose their minds over that. That will drag down prices where that meat is being processed. Every single day, there's debate about country of origin labeling and how beef is a labeled product of USA. USDA is supposedly supposed to come out with a rule on that, but they have not done it yet. What defines product of the USA on... Um, on meat labels is going to be something that's going to crop up in the next year. But even with these plants coming in, we've also seen some changes in, in cattle feeders. Now there's a proposal out in Western Nebraska for somebody to build a, I think it's up to 150,000 cattle feeding operation, which would be nearly twice as big as anything in the state of Nebraska. Now for an operation that big to come in as a cattle feeder, they're going to have to be anchored to somebody. They're going to have to be assured that they're going to be able to have rack space at a packing plant not too far away. You know, where's the beef from that feed yard going to go? Because the whole aspect is the idea that we're going to have more in, more independent meat packing plants. 
that will support more independent feeders. If somebody's building a 150,000 head feed yard, that takes away that dynamic, at least some part. That's a packing plant that could sustain one of these 1,500 head a day operations quite well and not have to worry a whole lot about buying live cattle on the spot market from, from other feeders. There's a lot that kind of goes into this stuff at the moment, and it's a fascinating debate. I want to circle back briefly to, you mentioned the plant that is partnering or has a selling a minority stake to Walmart and that trend in general. I think we've seen a couple similar deals in the dairy space where there's a little bit more of that vertical integration happening. I'd just be curious to hear your perspective. I think you talked briefly about that might represent the sea change of if you aren't working directly with one of the big four packers, you're going to be working directly with a retailer. Do you expect to see more plants go that route or more prospective operations on the beef side or in other kind of meat sectors go to working directly with the Walmarts or the Amazons of the world? The Walmarts, the Amazons, the Kroger's in the Midwest, the Hy-Vee, um, that I got a sense when I was talking to the guy who is looking to build Cattlemen's Heritage in Western Iowa. That plant, if it's built, would be about just 15 miles from where I live. He indicated after that Walmart deal, I interviewed him, and that that's where he saw some of these independent plants like himself going. Now, whether he was putting out a sign saying, oh, hey, we wouldn't mind dealing, having the same kind of agreement with somebody ourselves seemed to be the case a, a little bit. And, and so for the retailer that maybe wants to break away from the big four themselves a little bit or provide some competition in their own retail space, this is a really good opportunity for them. The one out in Nebraska, yeah, it's going to be able to provide some meat for Walmart, but it's not going to be able to provide anywhere near all of Walmart, it's going to be a regional thing. So there might be some real attraction for the same kind of thing. Hy-Vee is a regional grocery store in the Midwest, but it covers a lot of the Midwest and they might find the same kind of a thing attractive if they were partnering with the Iowa facility. The the one in St. Louis, I believe, is has got some sort of similar relationship as well because of the people that are putting that together. There's a lot of money behind that situation. I wanted to broaden out the conversation a little bit more as well. I think it was a bit of a surprise, I think, to see USDA come out earlier last week. And they had originally announced that they were going to give out a billion dollars as part of this Climate Smart grant in this first round to big organizations and partnerships that had strategies to do climate projects. They ended up giving out closer to $3 billion. I'm curious whether you've been following that story and just how you think that conversation might impact. Organizations like Tyson and JBS were on the list to have gotten some funding from that program. Does that throw a wrench into any of this kind of packing new facilities story? No, everybody in the food supply chain is looking for ways to tell consumers that they're lowering their carbon footprint. The the millennial, the Generation Z, those younger generations, 35 and younger especially, are very keyed in to, to environmental footprint and and ag production and you have all of these companies in in the food supply chain have made these big commitments to lower their emissions in different ways it's not jbs and cargill and tyson as everybody in the food chain in one way or another was somehow 
tied in with one of those projects, including DTN. We are working with the National Corn Growers, United Soybean Board, and some other organizations on helping expand cover crops in the in the states that are the biggest part of the corn belt and soybean belt. Everybody in the ag space is looking at ways to do this. And there are two ways to lower carbon footprints. There's the carrot and there's the stick. This is totally carrot. Everything involved here is trying to find ways to get farmers, cattle producers, dairy producers, everybody in the supply chain to find ways that the lower greenhouse gas emissions from crop production, from, from livestock production, to carbon sequestration within the soils. And it's USDA maybe used a little bit of a shotgun approach, so to speak. They said, here's all this money in different directions. Go off with it and tell us what works. Show us what works. The thing about it is two, three years from now, when they're putting out reports, what are the metrics kind of show of what's being done? Of course, there's also beyond this $2.8 million billion that was provided, USDA also has another $19.5 billion that will go into its conservation programs from the Inflation Reduction Act that has very similar language to it. So when USDA put out these grant proposals, I don't think they foresaw that they were going to get all that money in the IRA because at that point, it didn't look like the IRA, that, that kind of bill, that budget reconciliation bill was even going to pass. So they made this commitment and this push and they're, oh, by the way, we got another $19.5 in, in my view over time is there's going to be a lot of criticism and skepticism about how much it actually reduces emissions. But there are going to be a whole lot of other benefits that come with it expanding these kind of practices around around the country. Uh Farmers are going to diversify their crop rotations. They're going to find maybe some niche crops and niche things that they didn't perceive before. Maybe they're going to be able to add some cattle grazing into the cover crops, that sort of thing. But if you are doing all the practices on cropland that sequester carbon in the soil, all of that also translates long-term into water quality benefits. Ag's biggest environmental issue is not greenhouse gas emissions. Its water quality is certainly huge in the Mississippi and Missouri, Ohio river basins, nitrogen, phosphorus. We all hear about the dead zone every year. We know that the algae blooms are becoming a bigger problem everywhere. All of these different kind of practices long-term can add some benefits there. And if all of these different programs get implemented as hoped, 15, 20 years from now, they come back and they say, it turns out that greenhouse gas emissions in ag weren't a problem that we might've thought, but the water quality and the other environmental benefits, the soil health benefits that have been created are going to be there long-term. I think the other thing that both the Climate Smart and the USDA funds for expanding competitiveness in the meat sector. I'm also thinking about the many other USDA kind of in-between farm bill programs, I'm going to say, that have been implemented since 2018, since the last farm bill was signed. Obviously, 2023 is a farm bill year. Conversations mm, have... No, it will not be a farm bill year. <laughs> it's supposed yeah. to be a farm it, bill year. Yeah, it will not. Yeah, I'm extraordinarily pessimistic about the idea that a new Congress will get a farm bill passed in 2023 or even 2024. It'll be like herding cats. Just no way 
that they will get a farm bill done unless there is a commodity crash beyond anything we can foresee. I don't see how they get a farm bill done. But yeah. that's just my optimistic nature. So. And I think that's very fair. And I hear that sense from a lot of different wings. But I think there's another good question to ask there, given how many programs have been created outside of the Farm Bill. As you think about having covered this space for a long time and reporting on policy regularly as you do, how relevant is the Farm Bill at this point when we are creating new programs and pumping tens of billions of dollars into the ag sector outside of the farm bills every year for the last five years or so. I'm curious for your take on the relevance of the farm bill at this point. Well, we still, of course, call it the farm bill and we focus heavily on the commodity title and the crop insurance and the conservation. And we seem to lose touch and focus that really the biggest piece of the farm bill are the nutrition programs and and the farm bill is still very important for that bottom 10 to 15 percent of our population that needs to rely on food aid from the government and that is still a huge aspect of the farm bill but the commodity programs we always get into the situation in these cycles when prices are high Nobody cares about the commodity programs very much because they're not paying out any money and they're just not that interesting. The push from the farm groups right now is they want to see increases in reference prices in the next farm bill. I'm not sure how they do that because I don't know where the money comes from for that. Now, if you listen to the ranking member of the House Agriculture Committee, the possible chairman, if Republicans take over, he's alluding to the fact that, hey, you know, they got $19.5 billion for conservation in the IRA. We're probably going to take some money out of conservation and shift it over. Now, what kind, what that translates into, I don't know. But big issue, another aspect, you know, is still crop insurance. And that is still extraordinarily important to every farm group. They always want to see expansions. There's always a new commodity or a new product that they want to see championed and written into crop insurance. You have the conservation groups that want to advocate for providing some sort of incentive for conservation measures in crop insurance. So there's always a debate about that aspect. And there are a thousand different little nuances in the farm bill. I just got some press releases this morning from some senators that want to increase the funding that go to market access programs. They've been flat for several years. Those are all to promote foreign market development. And that there's a push to try to champion those kind of programs as well. So there, the farm bill goes a thousand different directions at this point in what everybody wants to do. So there's always tremendous interest because it's a trillion dollar bill. And that is where the problem that if you have a Republican led house, they are going to not want to pass a trillion dollar spending bill for, for any aspect of the federal government other than defense. It's going to be interesting to see next year, again, if the House flips, how they try to maneuver that. Because I guarantee if the House flips, the first thing, second, third thing that Republicans are going to want to do is they're going to want a, another budget reconciliation bill that cuts. And they are going to go to the House Agriculture Committee and tell us where you want to cut. 
And that suddenly becomes a real uncomfortable conversation for everybody. Same thing happened in, in 2011, 2012, 2013. The agriculture committees were the only committees that stepped up on their own and said, we think we can cut in certain places. There'll be another push to to take some dramatic cuts to farm programs. And that's where things suddenly get really messy. Any stories that you are following or exciting news that you think people should be on the lookout for in the next couple of months? Well, a big thing I think in the next couple of months, policy-wise, is going to be biofuels. This is going to be very interesting because EPA has a legal agreement with Growth Energy that they are going to put out uh, the proposed rule for how they will go forward with the renewable fuel standard. They're supposed to put it out November 1st, right before the election. So it's going to be interesting to see what EPA's guidelines and focus is going to be on what they call the RFS set going forward. And then you've got eight or nine states that want to have E15 year round and where they go with that. So there's a lot of focus and attention that's going to come on biofuels. And the climate smart stuff plays into that space as well, because it's all about lowering the carbon footprint of ethanol and biodiesel, renewable diesel, and the markets that those create for corn and soybean producers. That's going to be the thing, I think, in the policy space that's going to draw more attention over the next few months is what's the EPA going to do about uh, biofuels in 2023? You can read Chris's full coverage of proposed processing plants, as well as his extensive reporting on the cattle sector and on ag policy at DTNPF.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Chris Clayton. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you liked the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.